0: Welcome to the Data Bites podcast by Women in Data, where we give you your weekly bite-sized dose of career development advice, industry case studies, and career stories to help you excel in your data career. Today's guest is Alexandra Ebert, Chief Trust Officer at Mostly AI. Alexandra's work focuses on public policy issues in the emerging field of synthetic data and ethical AI. In this conversation, we discuss the importance of communication skills for data professionals, why synthetic data is important and how it can be used to assist in privacy and fairness, and we wrap up the episode by discussing the importance of open data for research, education, and policy. This episode is great for data leaders looking to increase the privacy practice of their data teams and provides practitioners and consumers with insights on the current state of ethical AI. Enjoy! Alexandra, thanks so much for joining me today. I've been looking forward to this conversation.
1: Thank you very much, Sadie. I was also very much looking forward to being here today.
0: And I'm happy you're here. My understanding is you just came back from Washington DC, speaking at an in-person conference. Um, So you're back in action. How's it been to be back commuting with people in person and, and chatting about these exciting topics of responsible and ethical AI?
1: Well, I still can't believe that I was in a room with roughly 5,000 people just the other day, but it was great to be back and and so nice to see many of the known faces again. And also the topics were really interesting. We mentioned this before we went on record. So it was a privacy conference, but there were also so many um, slots and and sessions on AI fairness, and I'm so happy to see that because I think that's really great progress.
0: Yeah, so one of the things I love working in the data space is there's always these new roles emerging, right? And prior to this, before we started recording, we were just talking about how much we love that there's more events and topics and sessions on privacy and fairness and AI. But one of the things that really struck me too was just your title seems a bit new, Chief Trust Officer. So I'm I'm dying to know like where did this come from? <laughs> How did you get there? Is this a role you see, you know, emerging more here in the future too as we pioneer new pathways into AI?
1: You're right. It's it's absolutely a new role. But uh, like, uh, funnily, at the conference last week, there was even a session titled, I forgot the exact title, but basically from privacy to trust, why chief trust officer is the new uh, direction which we're going. And actually, chief trust officers, I've seen this role at huge enterprises, but I work as a, uh, at a scale-up as a European synthetic data company. And for us, we um, started with this role because we saw how important trust is, not only for us as a company, but for the whole data and AI economy, because without trust, people wouldn't want to adopt AI. And it's also quite likely that not that many people would engage with it and make sure that it's involves in the right direction. So as chief trust officer, I'm basically responsible for, on the one hand, educating the public, but also interacting and engaging quite a lot with regulators, data protection authorities, data scientists and lawyers. And I really like being at this kind of intersection of different disciplines.
0: that's such an interesting role to have to be at the intersection of lawyers and executives and government officials. Mm. I mean, I'm sure balancing all those different perspectives, you've learned a lot in that. and then it, not let alone you're coming into them talking about a new emerging technology and probably doing, as you mentioned, a lot of education. What has working with all the different domains really taught you in, in this space?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's an excellent question, Sadie. So basically one thing that is so important when I do my work, but I think no matter which field, uh, it's, it's important to consider that always putting yourselves in the shoe of the person you're talking to and considering what's relevant to them, where they're coming from and how you can make what you want to communicate relevant and interesting for them. So I think that's one of the most interesting learnings I had engaging with all these different audiences and really then developing the skill of talking on the different levels of abstractions on topics like synthetic data and AI word of course, can become uh, quite technical quite quickly.
0: So do you have any tips for people on how to put yourself in the shoe of others? I think we hear a lot like how important empathy is, right? And how it's important for us to understand other people's perspective. And that all sounds good on paper, but I'm really into like, application where people are like cool I want to put myself in the shoe of my boss or in the shoe of my stakeholder like what do you do actually to do that
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> great question again so I mean some quick and easy things everybody can do is just on the one hand thinking a little bit about it or even doing some research so with your boss potentially what are the objectives she or he wants to reach this or uh, this year with a new role that you're approaching, did the company publish anything on in which direction they're currently heading? So, for example, if I'm trying to, to build a relationship with a chief data officer, what Kind of communication materials, press releases, interviews, uh, podcasts even are out there. Just listening to them a little bit and better understanding what's important to them, what resonates with them, and where they're coming from goes al- already a long way. And other than that, I think whenever it comes to communicating, what helped me a lot was definitely Toastmasters. I'm not sure if you know uh, this rhetorics club, uh, but just explaining it, you're nodding here, uh, just explaining it for the listeners. So it's actually a concept from the United States where Origin, but you can find it now in every larger city around the world and it's really a kind of public speaking training which helps you to get over stage fright but also to become a great public speaker but besides becoming a great public speaker you also see how different people get feedback put themselves into the shoes of one person that just gave a speech and tried to go, okay, are they a pro speaker? Can I be a little bit more uh, direct with my feedback? Or are they just starting out and do a re- maybe only focus on the thing that's most relevant for them and most applicable as of now? And therefore, I think that's really something that, that can help everybody who has to communicate in his or her job uh, to to, better, uh, to become better at that.
0: Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned to tel- Masters. I've attended a few of their sessions and I think it's a wonderful ah. organization and I'm happy to hear it's it's spread across the world now and, you know, available outside of the U.S. and something people can take advantage of. So shifting gears a little bit, we'd love to dive into synthetic data and would love to first just start by you level setting for us your definition of, of what is synthetic data.
1: hmm Mm -hmm. Happy to do that. I mean, before I dive into the explanation, just to give everybody context, I think everybody who's listening knows uh, how important data and how important artificial intelligence is nowadays and that we live in a world where more and more data, in fact, more data than ever before is collected. But on the other hand, we also have stricter privacy legislation and in many areas, particularly in Europe and also in the United States. The need for organizations and also the desire for organizations to innovate in a way without risking the privacy of their customers. And this oftentimes comes at a conflict because AI particularly needs huge amounts of data and you don't want to get uh, into the space of personal data when you're developing artificial intelligence. And that's the exact reason why synthetic data is currently such an important technology. You can think of it as an advanced anonymization technology. It helps you to transform an existing data set, or basically to learn from an existing customer data set, into a completely artificial intelligence. Uh, sorry, starting again. It helps you to tr- transform an original data set, let's say the financial transactions from a bank, into a completely anonymous synthetic version thereof how does this work? You have a deep learning algorithm that's capable to automatically extract all the structures, correlations, time dependencies in a dataset. To simplify it, this algorithm can understand how a given bank's customer think and behave. And this knowledge is taken to completely separately create a new synthetic data set, new synthetic customers and their financial transactions. Statistically speaking, these data sets are indistinguishable. So you get the same uh, statistics, it's super representative, it's super realistic, and you would get the same answers if you were to query the synthetic data set versus the original data set or if you were to train an algorithm on them. But there's no one-to-one relation. So there's no Alexandra and no Sadie in the synthetic data set. Only generalizable patterns of everybody, but no one-to-one information is taken into the synthetic version. And this really solves a puzzle that was unsolvable before whenever you looked into anonymization that allows you to retain all of the value in the data set while protecting privacy of people.
0: Well, this is a great opportunity i feel just in terms of what we can do now for the privacy of people and i love the example you used in financial systems because i think that's one that's brought up a lot today i know um one of the books we've read at women in data and book club is um, weapons of math destruction and it's a uh, great book that classic. talks about <laughs> yeah it's a classic kind of book in regards to some of the problems that exist with algorithms today but what you're talking about here is really a solution for it. And would love to know a little bit more about how you've seen some of these benefits play out in terms of privacy and fairness for individuals. Like, have we seen use cases now where synthetic data has been used in, let's say, financial systems that we've seen mm-hmm. better outcomes at the individual level now? Mm
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are actually plenty of examples, just maybe again for context for our listeners, if you think where we were coming from with anonymization and what synthetic data offers nowadays, traditional anonymization techniques like masking or obfuscating, which all are rather destructive in the nature because they don't use the original data as learning material and then create something new as synthetic data does. But they really stick with the original date and just go over it with, let's say, a black pen, getting away uh, on striking through your last name, social security number, and whatever they deem to be re identifying. And the problem here is twofold. On the one hand, research has demonstrated over and over again that these approaches just don't work anymore. No matter how much information you delete and today organizations oftentimes have dozens, hundreds, even thousands of attributes per customer even if you only keep a handful it's still easy to re-identify this data because we all are just so unique and have our unique digital fingerprint. But the second problem and this is a utility problem is that they destroy valuable information. So again an example from the financial services industry, there was a study where they um try to to anonymize basically analyzed an anonymized data set, a traditionally anonymized data set. And they figured out that even though from this credit card history data set where per customer only three transactions and not even the full transaction with what you bought, how much and so on and so forth, but just the date of the transaction and the merchant. So basically bought yesterday at Amazon or bought the week before at Walmart or something like that, nothing more from three transactions per customer led to more than 70% of customers being re-identified. So you see, everybody of us has at least a few dozens, if not a few hundred credit card transactions today. And just parts of three transactions are enough to re-identify people if this data set is traditionally anonymized. So if you're a data scientist, there's not much to work with left that you can really use. With synthetic data, you can basically retain 99.5% of the information. So Of course, one of the most important use cases is AI training, because this is just such a data-hungry application. In financial services, for example, it's used to improve fraud detection algorithms or any other uh, algorithms, but it's also used in product development. Just think of the diversity of people if you can't see as a product developer as a ux designer the richness and the diversity of humanity you can never develop something that really caters to the needs of everyone you only would develop something for the average chain or show so Synthetic data, since it's privacy safe, can be made available to product development teams and help them to really see, OK, what added service might be benefiting our college students? What should we include for retired people to help them better navigate to this application and so on and so forth? So It really is a way to bring products to life before they are life and and you have all this data from from live usage. Software testing is another big thing and one thing that I find particularly interesting is everything that goes in the direction of data sharing. Today so many organizations want to collaborate to build new platforms seamless services or even to innovate together with if you stay in the banking context of fintech or any other startup because as a big organization you might don't yet have the AI talent yourself and of course If you want to collaborate, data sharing is a necessity. But privacy protection is as well. And here's where synthetic data can help you to instantly share data that you can then use to jointly create something new for your customers.
0: Wow, this is incredible. I I love talking to people and I love this podcast because every time I learn new things and I'm just so (laughs) surprised by it's only three transactions to identify 70% of people. Yeah, that's amazing. It's just a thing. And then... You know, I've shared a couple times with our listeners, I was a, a victim of a lot of cyber hacking last year, and it oh. just made me realize just one, how vulnerable we are, but two, it really came from uh, my digital trail that I have left being a consumer and participant in a digital world for over 10 years, right? And I think... You know, when you're sharing something like this, if just three transactions could identify you, let alone what we think of all that we do online and on the Internet and how much of our life is represented in a digital form. It's not hard for someone to identify us. And if it's put in the wrong in the hands of the wrong person, there can be some terrible consequences for people from that.
1: Exactly. It's definitely not easy. And particularly in the last few months, a few exciting studies came out that showed to re-identify people in these traditionally anonymized data sets. It's not even that you need to find exact data points to match what you have left in this supposedly anonymous form. But sometimes if you can figure out the kind of metadata the behavioral patterns of people so think of whatsapp communication how quickly you reply to people with whom you're in contact and so on and so forth these patterns tend to stay constant over a longer period of time so even if you wouldn't be able to find any i don't know whatsapp communication from you from 2021 because it was deleted or something like that if they get something in their hands from 2022 they would still find a few matching patterns and could use that to re-identify you so It's just irresponsible for organizations to use something that's just traditionally anonymized because it's not keeping people's privacy safe.
0: Incredible. You've also shared with me before that synthetic data you start to see help organizations attract and retain talent. And for our our business leaders out there listening in today, I know this is something that is top of mind for them in terms of, one, how do I keep the people in my org today right and, and keep them engaged and excited and help them to you know do their best work and then also how do i attract that new talent how does synth- these seem like two different worlds so how does synthetic data help in supporting <laughs> that process or how have you seen it help
1: yeah sure so we all know data science talent is scarce and Every organization is fighting for it. If you're a data scientist, what do you want to do? You want to have impact, you want to have access to data, and you want to work in an environment where you can be agile, fast-moving, and where you can make a difference. We at Mostly, we work a lot with the financial services industry, insurance industry, healthcare, public sector, and so on and so forth. All heavily regulated industries and not necessarily top of mind for data science talent when they're looking for a new job. Because you know, or many of them know, that accessing data in those organizations, if it only takes weeks, then they're rather quick. What we hear from enterprises both in Europe as well as in the United States is oftentimes they have to calculate with three months, six months, sometimes even eight months if they want to share the data externally. So as a data scientist, you're mainly bored and trying to go through all these cumbersome bureaucratic processes, finally getting access to your data. Synthetic data, on the other hand, changes that because it can automate this data access request process and really give you access to workable, useful, realistic data in a matter of hours or one business day or something like that. And this is what our clients in both financial services as well as insurance found that now that they have synthetic data, they are actually drawing talents in because they can work much more agile and really uh, contribute to this impact that they want to have in their jobs.
0: I love it. I think this is, that insight can kind of go both ways. One, for the leaders of those types of organizations who know how long it takes for their team members to get access to that information and data. And then two, for those currently working in organizations where they're encountering a lot of barriers to being able to get access to the information that they need to build their models. This may be a great solution, right? So everyone loves an employee who doesn't just complain and and come to them and with complaints of why they can't do something. Instead, come with these types of solutions. So I think definitely,
1: and we also love. Definitely, and we also loved when we saw that our customers started uh, posting job ads for data scientists and other roles uh, specialized on synthetic data. So there's really kind of a small sub-industry growing now for data scientists in that field, and I think that's absolutely amazing.
0: So this may seem a little counterintuitive, but you also work with open data. So with synthetic data, right, where a big benefit is privacy and fairness and in some ways, open data seems opposite of that, right? It's open, so it's, it's their privacy there. <laughs> but you actually think open data, I believe, helps a lot with fairness and decision making. Can you tell a little bit more about some of the use cases you've seen or worked on with open data practices?
1: I'd love to do that because I'm super passionate about open data but to be specific when I'm talking about open data I'm always talking about open synthetic data because you know it's counterintuitive if you were just to publish all your existing data then of course this would be a huge issue to privacy. Uh, We need to get to the fairness topic I haven't talked about that yet but in general what synthetic data does it helps you to unlock data in a privacy safe form and use it for innovation both within an organization but of course also extra. in the context of open data. And when we look into today's society, I think one thing that would tremendously benefit us if it's not only a privileged few big tech companies owning all the data resources, but if data is much more openly available, accessible by researchers, by startups, medium and small enterprises, and so on and so forth, so that everybody can work with this most valuable resource of the 21st century. And in the context of synthetic data, there are a few amazing projects that I want to mention. So one actually is from the United States, from the health insurance Humana. They just at the end of last year, 2021, published a so-called synthetic data exchange, where they made synthetic versions, so fully anonymous but nonetheless representative and realistic. Um, versions of uh, Humana customer data available and their uh, insurance claims. I think it was 1.5 million or something like that. So quite a huge data set and much more granular than what a data scientist usually can find on Kaggle or some of the other open data platforms because they really see this benefit of the data they have and want to make it accessible for researchers. So that's one of my favorite ones. Then in the past few months we've also started working with the Joint Research Center of the European Commission because they wanted to evaluate our Technology to see whether they could make a synthetic version of 50 million Europeans' cancer data available again, to democratize access for researchers, but also and I think that's exciting for data-driven policymaking, because currently this data is, of course, locked up due to its sensitivity. But there's so much in there that you can read out. For example, figuring out that a given member state of the European Union potentially has some issues in early detection of cancer based on the numbers. So how can policymakers intervene here and try to improve? Or that another country potentially should upskill the surgeons because people are, I don't know, getting cancer again once it's surgically removed and so on and so forth. And I think particularly in the context of data for good, open data is the way to go and is something that can really help us to reap these benefits of data and artificial intelligence, not only for businesses but for society.
0: Yeah, and have you started to see this play a role in education as well? Because I hear a lot from students, you know, at university, they complain so often because they're like, I... Working with such a small data set because it's all my professor can get or it's the only thing that's open and I don't feel like it's preparing me for the the real world, right, to work with these really large data sets. It seems like there's a, a marriage here that needs to happen between the open synthetic data and some of the universities so that they have access to, one, develop these skills, but then also just the new research that's available with this information could be really have a huge impact.
1: Absolutely and I so love what your um, organization is doing in that regards with your data curiosity program for kids and all these educational efforts because to make AI responsible to make it uh, trustworthy and ethical it's so important that more people join the discourse and that more people get involved and therefore not everybody has to become a data scientist but just working with data and being in an position to make sense out of it I think is one of the most important skills that the public should should start obtaining and if you never get access to data or at least not granular data then of course you're quite limited in how much you can do with this data and how much you can really understand it so definitely synthetic data in an open form is something that could help tremendously for creating and, and helping new data citizens to emerge and also uh, students and, and university participants to benefit from it.
0: So I want to make sure we have some time to talk about fairness and fairness in AI. And this to me, fairness is a really hard term to define. I I also feel like if we would ask the different stakeholders of lawyers and government officials (laughs) to philosophers, everyone would have a different definition of fairness. But but what does fairness in AI look like and, and what does that mean to you?
1: Sure. Uh, So I think that's exactly the point with fairness. You can't come up with one definition. And I sometimes, when I try to explain it, uh, come up with my imaginary nephew and niece think of him being a six-year-old small kid and she, uh, her being three years old or something like that. If I were to give them uh, six pieces of chocolate, then he might argue, well, he should get four because he's the bigger one and his little sister should only get two. And her position might be, well, uh, everybody should get three pieces. It would, this would be much more fair. So you can see that fairness is something that can be different from culture to culture, even from individual to individual. And with fairness, I think there are many things that are important. One, what I just said earlier, that more people are involved. What's fair and what's not is not a decision that any data scientist should be solely responsible for. It's something that the public, organization, or maybe regulators should decide upon. And then, of course, it's important that we develop tools and also the awareness on how to get fairness out of AI. It's not that AI is inherently uh, biased, but the problem is we train it on our historic data. And we also mentioned that before we went off record, we as humans tend to have a history of not always going in the right direction and making the ethically and morally correct choice. So uh, to give a popular example, Amazon had to learn it the hard way when they thought that AI might be useful for them to help them uh, sort through all of the thousands of applicants that they get per year. So they trained uh, an algorithm on previous Amazon employees and this algorithm, of course, picked up that for mid and senior management positions, if you're a male, you seem to be significantly more suitable because there were just so little examples of female in that positions and the result was an algorithm that would never or rarely uh, give a cv of a female uh, applicant to the recruiters which of course is not necessarily what was what we want to see in 2022 or uh, a few years back when this actually happened so they quite quickly stopped with that exercise and therefore i think it's really important that on the one hand data scientists create an awareness for fairness but that there are also easily applicable tools out there that help them to actually achieve this because we can't expect that everybody becomes an ai fairness expert practitioner
0: so when you talk about some of these tools what are there the tools available to be able to have this cuz you know i think a lot of times when it comes to fairness you know as you mentioned there's historic and cultural elements to it and I think oftentimes we're so worried as data scientists or practitioners to just get our model out there and have it in production and have it working that a lot of times then you add on this whole topic of fairness that it's like I, I don't know I, I don't feel ready to dive into it or to find it or feel like I'm equipped with the resources to actually make a change out there. So, Do you have suggestions in terms of tools or resources people can use so that they don't feel like this is some mountain that they can't climb or start to address and start to make some change in what they're currently doing?
1: Well, unfortunately, we are not that far yet that I could give you this three steps program to get rid of <laughs> bias in all of your AI models. Uh, but there are various things you could do. There was, I think it was last year, potentially end of end of 2020, I have to check that, a survey with AI fairness practitioners, mainly from one of the uh, some of the hugest organizations. And the number one challenge for them actually was to know whether the model was actually exhibiting bias or not. Because due to certain anti-discrimination and privacy, legislations, in many circumstances, the developers and data scientists don't even have access to sensitive attributes like ethnicity, gender, and so on and so forth. So they kind of have to operate in the blind because state-of-the-art literature suggests that to make sure that your model truly is colorblind or gender blind, you have to make sure that you cancel out the effects of these attributes already in the development stage. If you don't have them, that's a terribly hard task. And this is where we actually with our synthetic data can help where it's possible to make this um, available in a privacy safe form. Another thing that I think is important, um, particularly with the large organizations we work with, they, of course, are a little bit concerned with more more AI being adopted. And at the same time, we have the AI Act, the first comprehensive regulation currently in draft stage in the European Union, where there will also be quite strict fairness requirements. Uh, So they are a little bit concerned how they should actually make sure to comply with that. And of course, they want to have fair uh, algorithms out there. And therefore, we see that also these kind of of AI assurance ecosystems are being built up in the UK currently but also in the European Union where you have something like auditors or certifiers that help you to assess whether your models are biased or not. Here again synthetic data is something that could help because as an auditor if you only look at the code of a model you wouldn't be any wiser but you need to have data available to make sure that you can Uh, truly see how this uh, model performs for different user groups but this is just the assessment stage so you also need to get it out of your system. Um, From the tools that we currently have available they mainly help, so for example I'm talking about the different suits that you find on Azure or IBM 360 Fairness or however it's called, they mainly help you with detecting bias but they're not that good with helping you to eliminate it so there's still some research that needs to be done. We at Mostly AI, we also research, research a concept called fair synthetic data and i think that's particularly interesting in regards of the historic biases that we talked about so what this helps you to do is to smartly upsample or to smartly uh, modify a data set that for example things like the gender pay gap gets eliminated but without screwing all of the other distributions and correlations in the data set. And we currently are um, doing a a project together with one of our customers uh, where they first want to apply this in practice. And it's really amazing to see how much it helps them to make sure that they achieve this kind of ethnicity blindness that I mentioned uh, earlier because the model already gets trained with something that doesn't reflect the world as it is, historically biased, but more like we or this organization or, or we as a society would like the world to be. And I hope that this is something that can contribute to making downstream models uh, fairer. But it's many other things. So it's the diversity in data science teams. It's making sure that you collect data in a fair way and that it's truly giving you a full picture, that you have enough examples also from minority groups. And then that you don't forget about fairness when your model is deployed. You need to constantly monitor and evaluate and see if you have some model drift or something else that's impacting the fairness of the model. So it's really not an easy task, but more and more work is being done so i'm confident that in the future we hopefully will have these fair algorithms
0: yes and i think it's such a i appreciate your honesty of where this is at in the current state because i think it's a great call to action for the listeners who are hearing this today Of like i am passionate about this and i want to make a change in this area that yes there is a need for more people to come into this space and to create these solutions right you know we have Great absolutely, coaches. absolutely. <laughs> yes, I hope that people use this as a way to inspire them to um, start to get into this space. So as we wrap up today, I would love to just get your perspective on, you know, what is your vision for the future of AI, especially given the great work you do around trust and privacy and fairness and open data like in a perfect world, if your vision of the future of AI could come true, what would that look like in this space?
1: (laughs) Wonderful question, Sadie. So I'm definitely more on the optimist side of of the spectrum. I think that we are on a good way to make AI that's really human-centric and beneficial for uh, everyone as opposed to just, I don't know, uh, for for a privileged group of few. Um, Again, I'm also... uh, And one other thing that I want to mention in that regards, I have a wonderful friend from the IEEE Standards Organization and she always makes the point that People should stop being scared of artificial intelligence and thinking of this Hollywood sci-fi scenarios of AI taking over the world, uh, occupying all of our jobs and so on and so forth. We are building this and we need to make sure that it goes in the right direction. And this is something that so many have realized now, both on the technical side, but also on the regulatory side. So I'm positive that we're moving in the right direction.
0: I love it. And I'm definitely a tech optimist as well. And I think it's conversations to to inspire more people to get into the space. And it's really all of us coming together that will create those solutions and make sure that it is a fair and safe world that we are creating in the future. So thank you. If you're ready, we can jump into the rapid fire questions.
1: I hope I'm ready.
0: Okay. (laughs) What is your, what song do you currently have on repeat?
1: Whew. Uh, The past few weeks, I've mainly listened to podcasts, so I don't have that many songs on repeat, but podcasts I love, uh, me, myself, and AI, and then something that doesn't have to do anything with AI is actually the Huberman Lab podcast Mm -hmm. from Andrew Huberman. He's a neuroscience professor from Stanford, and I just find it so insightful what he talks about in regards to fitness, but also focus and so on and so forth, well-being, sleep. Really good podcast I can recommend. I
0: love that. I this will be another conversation that we'll have to have back as it sounds like we have a similar for <laughs> neuroscience in this space. And I have a view of my Didn't know that. Nice. podcast as well. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm excited for this question because you recently just traveled, but would love to know your favorite place you've traveled.
1: I just am allowed to pick one. That's difficult. Well, the most beautiful place I've ever been to was somewhere in the middle or south of Thailand. Don't ask me for the name; I don't know it anymore. But we did a canyoning tour through a mangrove forest, and it was like this beautiful, mystical forest with the water where you were weaving through with your canoe, and then there were these huge uh, cliffs next to you and kind of uh, rainforest vegetation was just kind of peering over this forest from the top so it was really the most amazing place I've ever been to.
0: That sounds beautiful. I'm already there right now with you with the beautiful picture (laughs) you described. Okay so happiness is and fill in the blank.
1: Happiness is something that's much more important every day than tied to a big goal, like getting that huge promotion or finally buying that house, I think it's so important that you create your life in your way that you're happy basically every day, of course, not ever, but happiness, something from the small things every day is definitely the way to go, I think. It's
0: beautiful. In the next five years, I hope to...
1: Continue to be happy. Uh I hope that I can make a difference and contribute to making the world fairer and being better equipped to achieving responsible AI. And yeah, maybe learning a few new aerial silks tricks because that's one of my favorite sports. And it's always fascinating to figure out how to move your, uh, I don't know, legs, arms and so on and so forth to make these pretty shapes. And last but not
0: least, to me, curiosity is...
1: Mm, a necessity and a constant. I'm super curious. I love learning new stuff and I'm into food science, AI, dancing, so many other topics. So really curious about many things and that's great fun to always learn something new about them.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a pleasure. It's been an inspiring conversation. I know it will inspire our listeners and give them some good tangible things to um, start to use. What's the best way for... People to stay connected with you and learn more about your work.
1: I'm most active on LinkedIn, so they can definitely reach out to me there. And then, of course, on Mostly AI, we're publishing great case studies and ebooks. So if they're interested in synthetic data, both for privacy but also fairness, then that's a good place to go. And maybe one other plug: I have the Data Democratization podcast where I'm hosting a podcast. Uh, but I'm also similar as you, loving what I learned there about responsible AI from some of the greatest regulators, technic- uh, technic- uh, sorry, regulators, practitioners, and also AI ethicists and others. So it's really great fun
0: wonderful we'll be sure to put a link to the podcast and your linkedin and any other resources you want to share in the show notes so people can stay connected with your great work and continue to be inspired so thank you so much
1: thank you so much for having me sadie and i'll uh, pick you up on this offer to talk neuroscience at one point in time would love to do that
0: If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.